Uh, well, let's, let's look at uh, the book of Acts together, man. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We've been walking through the book of Acts for uh, a number of weeks now, and we find ourselves in the second chapter, finishing the second chapter, in fact, in verses 42 through 47 uh, this morning. Oh, man. This, uh, this book is all about the early church. Uh, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's more appropriately called the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles or through the apostles. And uh, today I'm looking at a, a, a title slide. You're looking at a title slide that says Church 101. Uh, I couldn't think of anything clever. I mean, it's just simply put, this is introduction to church. This is what the church is all about in these six verses that we're going to look at this morning. The introduction to a healthy church. That brings back for me like post traumatic stress from being in school. When I see 101, I, I just think about essays and papers and tests, and I have a small panic attack. What is the church's identity? That's what we're talking about. What is church 101? What is the church's identity? At our very core, who are we, and what are we called to do? At our core, who are we, and what are we called to do? You know, those are important questions. Who we are, our identity, what are we called to do? The working out of that identity. You know, those are questions that aren't just true of the church. They're certainly true of the church, but those are two questions that are true of secular businesses even. They really care about identity, mission, and purpose, and vision. McDonald's will never not serve the Big Mac. You know that? Like, they can, they can pretend that they all of a sudden are becoming healthy and serve quesadillas and breakfast burritos. Let's be honest, McDonald's is never going to be healthy. That's their identity. They serve a Big Mac, for goodness sake, and it's just so, like, you could set that thing on your counter for two weeks and it wouldn't go bad because it's got all the preservatives in it. Big Mac will always be at McDonald's because that's their identity. KFC will always serve chicken, and they can do grilled chicken, but they'll always serve chicken. In fact, they'll always serve fried chicken. The building can change. The tables can change. They may put in a drive through They may put in ordering kiosks. They may make delivery a thing. They could change their logo, change their branding. But the way that KFC presents their fried chicken can even change. They've made nuggets and then sandwiches. And guess what? It's all chicken, baby. It's all chicken. They can put it in a bucket. They can put it on a plate. They can put it in a bowl with mashed potatoes and corn and gravy on it. It's still chicken. Because KFC knows that they will never become a burger joint because that's not their identity. That's not their identity. And they can change certain things, but even their corporate heads know that they will never change their identity. That's true of the church. The church's identity. Church 101 is who we are and what we are called to do. Fellowship. We do not seek to be a modern church. We don't seek to be a trendy church. We don't seek to be a progressive church or an attractive church. We seek to be a Jesus-centered, gospel-believing, and spirit-empowered church movement of God. That's our identity, and it will never change. We can change the application of our identity to fit our current context. You can put in LEDs as opposed to, I don't know, lamps. You can, you can change and do a portable baptistry as opposed to one that's fixed. Things can change. Application, you can do chairs instead of pews. But our identity will never change. Who we are, a gospel-saturated, Jesus-worshiping, Bible-believing body of believers can never change if we desire to remain faithful to our unchanging God. If we want to be a faithful church, these six verses that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 2 are necessarily instructive for us. Now, these six verses are not exhaustive. They're not everything that the church is to be, but they are exactly what the church is supposed to be. They're our core. They are our identity. Absolutely essential. So let's look at them. 
chapter 2 of Acts, looking at verses 42 through 47. Let's look at them together, and then we'll walk through it together, all right? It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's right after it says that the Lord added 3,000 to their number in a single day. This little paragraph here is sort of a, a glue paragraph. Right before it was the narrative of Pentecost. Right after it is sort of a new narrative about some things that are going on in the temple. And so this paragraph is sort of like a, a thesis paragraph. It explains some of the things. It sort of recaps the things that came before it. But it also leads us into all the things that are going to come uh, after it. And so it's a thesis paragraph that talks about when it says all these things, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. What that's saying is, and by the way, speaking of all those things, let's look at all the examples of that. This is a thesis paragraph. What made the church who they were? It was these things. Why did the Spirit work so mightily through them? It was for these reasons. And for us, how can we ensure that we are adopting the model of the early church? It's these things. It's, it's church 101. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I got three things I'm going to leave with you. And honestly, we could make that a lot, we make it a dozen things probably, but just for the sake of, of simplification, I've brought it into three main categories. All about being together, Church 101 doing this together. Number one is doing life together. Doing life together. This was seen very clearly in the lives of the early Christians, the early church. Again, this list of three that we're going to look at this morning, it could be so much fuller. This is not an exhaustive list, and it includes many sub-themes that we'll see under each one of these. The first one is doing life together. When I say doing life, I really mean to summarize the things that you see in verse 42. So let's look at that. This is what I mean, doing life together. And they devoted themselves to, you'll see four things here. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, and the fellowship. Three and four are to the breaking of bread and the prayers. First, let's hit the apostles' teaching. Really, this is Jesus' teaching because the apostles are simply taking what they were instructed and then giving it to the early Christians. And so when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they're really devoting themselves to Jesus' teaching. They're devoting themselves to God's Word, okay? That's really, to simply put, what's happening here. Not only were they learning how to be saved, in other words, but they were learning how to live, how to survive, how to endure as someone who is saved. Paul and Peter frequently wrote to, quote, exiles, unquote, or to sojourners. Those terms mean something because they were trying to teach believers how to endure in a world that was not their home. You're away from home, they would say. You're, tra you're travelers, but one day you will go to be home, to be with the Lord. To be devoted to the apostles' teaching meant to teach them that you were to have, you can have inner peace amidst outer struggle. They were devoted to being trained and to training others in the scriptures. Why fellowship? Are we people of the word? That's why. Church 101. We must be people of the word. Secondly, we're devoted to the fellowship, is what it says here in verse 42. Again, this is sort of B underneath number one. They're devoted to the fellowship. What a great name for a church, right? Fellowship? Maybe we should think on that a little bit. Should put Acts 242 on a wall around here somewhere. You guys want to let's do that, right? 
We should. That's exactly where we get our name from. The early church was forming an alternate society within a larger society. You have big picture society. We're part of a nation. We're part of a people group. This is true of us too. But they were forming a subcontext within a larger society. That was the early church. And that is our church. Guys, we're creating a Christian community, a sub-society within a larger society. Christ, in other words, called a community, not just individuals, a community. We're not isolated Christians that live on islands and then we just kind of run into each other every Sunday. God called us to be a community. And a community doesn't just see each other for two hours once a week or once every two weeks, right? We're called to be a community of believers, not just individuals. It means to come together. The word fellowship is the word koinonia. It's a Greek word that means fellowship, or it could mean partnership. There is a substance. When you think of a partnership, maybe a business partnership, or somebody that has a practice or something, runs a shop together, there is a substance. There is something, some sort of commonality that brings a partnership together. And it's not just sense of humor. It's not just like desires or hobbies or personalities. There is something that brings people together that are in partnership with one another. And that thing is the substance, the theme of the fellowship, of the partnership. Imagine two guys that own a car shop together, never talking about cars. We've got a couple of those guys in here today. I'm not going to put you guys on blast. But imagine that. Two guys that own a car shop together, they never talk business. They never talk about cars. Or two ladies that own a salon together that never discuss whatever salons do. They never talk about those things. (laughs) Imagine two partners working on the same construction project and never discussing said project. That sounds absurd because when there is a partnership, a fellowship, There is a substance, there's a commonality that brings them together. That's the fellowship. And we are not just in a fellowship because we meet under the same roof on Sundays and Wednesdays or because it's the name that's on the sign out there by the road. We are a fellowship because of the name which brings us together, and it's the name of Jesus. Because we're very different, and yet we're the same. Because we're a partnership, a fellowship that is brought together by the name of Jesus. And I'll be honest, at times we err too much. You know, we talk about it's not a religion, it's a relationship. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's true. You have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I think at times we err too much on the side of personal relationship stuff to the neglect of fellowship stuff. It's like, yes, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Praise God for that. But you also have a collective relationship with Jesus. You're called not to be an isolated individual. You're called to be a fellowship. It's not me and Jesus, it's we and Jesus. We have the same strength when we are weak. We have the same divine counselor in daily struggles. We share the same spirit-empowered mission. We have the same hope in affliction, same joy in sadness, same peace in conflict, the same rescue from the wages of sin that once ensnared us. We have a common Savior, a common spirit in each of us, a common final destination. That's a lot of common. That's a lot of fellowship. You'll see this on the screen behind me. Fellowship isn't just our name. It is our God-given function. Fellowship is not just our name. It is our God-given function. It's not just our logo. It's not just our branding. It's who we are. We're a partnership. Not because of the name on the sign, because the name that brings us together, the name of Jesus. Together. There's a togetherness to that. Secondly, we don't just... We don't just do life together. We also share together, sharing together. And easily you could combine sharing with doing life. That's what I'm saying. These things are going to kind of bleed together a lot. I mean, sharing life together is doing life together. But we're going to see that this is sort of a different theme that we see 
And we'll come back and talk about the breaking of bread and the prayers because, again, it's all kind of intertwined here, circular. Few things marked the early church more than a spirit of communal generosity. They were committed to one another. They were constantly sharing one another's burdens. They were constantly giving of their material things to one another. Verse 43 hits on this. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In, in verse 44, we're going to see some of this commonality come into play. Notice it says, And awe came upon every soul. The wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They saw God doing things, and so they were at awe. Now, here's the thing. They saw the apostles doing things and the 120 at Pentecost doing things in Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm going to read this because look at the reaction of the people when they were doing these amazing things. It says, and all were amazed, but the second word is different. They were perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Before, that's what you have. But after the fellowship comes together, you have what we see here. They were filled with awe at all the things that God was doing. What that means is that awe is knowing exactly where those things came from. Perplexity is saying, ah, this is confusing. Awe is saying, we know exactly what's happening, and it is amazing. Awe is reverent fear. In fact, your translation may say the word fear, because that's what that word awe means. It's reverent fear or wonder at what God had done and was doing. Pentecost's context is the Old Testament. They're talking about Sinai, and they're talking about Moses and Exodus and Pharaoh and all the amazing things God did in liberating his people from those things in the Old Testament. And so when it says here in this passage, wonders and signs that were being done. In the Old Testament, wonders and signs were done at this time in the Old Testament context. And it was referring to God doing things to deliver his people from his enemies. Listen, church. God is still doing things to deliver his people from his enemies. And when we see God do those things, you know what the appropriate reaction is? Not perplexity. It's awe. It's reverent fear. Wow, what God is doing. In other words, for us, when God proves himself greater than Satan, greater than sin, and greater than the woes that we experience as a result of both, our response should be, wow, God has proven once again that he has power over the enemy. Wow. Praise God. He has proven it once again that he is greater than the enemy. I was talking to Sam, uh, Sam Riley, our, our minister to students here uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about baptism. You know, we had baptism coming up this Sunday and talking specifically about baptism testimonies. Man, I, I can only talk about my experience. Guys, those testimonies bless me so much. Like the fruit from that is so, you know what it is? It's awe. That's all I have. Uh, we were talking about it this week, and I, I shared with Sam a testimony of someone that will get baptized here in the next few weeks, uh, a young lady who's um, an adult, but a young lady, and I was just like, man, check this testimony out, you know, and we were just stunned over it, and I just said, I can't believe the way that those things are articulated, because the individual is not somebody who raised in the church, this is not something that they just, they don't know, you know, Christianese, they don't know how to speak those things, but when I read the testimony, it was like this person had been in church their entire life. Like, this is second nature, but it's all new. And so when I read it, I was just thinking, I can't believe how eloquent and beautiful and amazing this is. And I was just, I told Sam, I was like, I can't believe it. And Sam's your reaction was, why are you still surprised? Why are you still surprised? And that comes from a good place because the fact of the matter is, we shouldn't be surprised when God does what God can do. We shouldn't be surprised when God supernaturally empowers a young lady to talk like she has no business talking. Because it's God. 
That's what God does. And so Sam says, why are you surprised? And I'm with him. Why should we be surprised? However, that feeling of, well, I shouldn't be surprised. It also shouldn't cause us to be tame. We can say, well, I'm not surprised, so it's just God does what God does. No, no, no. Don't be surprised, but also don't treat it like it's nothing. You know what we should do? We should be absolutely awestruck that God is still in the business of doing what only God can do. When he does wonders and signs and proves that he still has power over his enemies, we should say, he still has power over his enemies. Praise God. And by the way, we should share that awe. Like, like clapping whenever we hear somebody share their testimony. Like, like hooping and hollering at times. I like that, man. The football is not the only place that we should be testifying like that, right? Man, praise God for, for what God is doing. We should be celebrating that right there. Sharing our awe. That's what they do in the testimony waters when they share. They're sharing their awe. November 19th, we're going to have our Harvest Supper. And this is my invitation to you. You don't have to be a fellowship person. You may be a guest today. I would love, love, love for you to be here on November 19th. I think it's at 5 p.m. We're going to fill that space out there with tables and chairs and eat together and eat a lot together and celebrate our Thanksgiving meal together. It's a harvest supper, and it's not just because it's the time of harvest, Thanksgiving season. It's because we're celebrating that God is a God of the harvest. He has done much. Between this time last year and this time this year, there is a great harvest that God has accomplished. Last year, we had a microphone out there, and usually I share a little devotion. And I may do that this time, but the microphone will still be out there. Last time, we, I just said, if anyone wants to say anything, like give, give a word of thanksgiving, just come and just do it. And some of you guys did, and it was great. And man, my heart was blessed by that. So many people's hearts were blessed by that. But I'm going to issue you a new challenge this week, or this, this, this month coming up. We're going to do the same thing. There's going to be a microphone out there, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something, uh, to testify, to, to be awe, to, be, uh, to, give, to share your awe with your church family or what you may want to be your church family in the near future. Uh, I had a couple of ladies, um, young ladies approach me after the service, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago when we baptized and came up and said, hey, you know, we'll never be baptized here because we've already been baptized, but we'd love to have the opportunity to share our own story. And, uh, you know, we'll read from the paper, whatever, and, and we can testify. And I said, that's exactly what we're going to do at Thanksgiving. So I'm going to set up the microphone. Go ahead and put that slide up there that I gave you with all that stuff on it. If you want to take a picture of this, you can. This is the formula that I share with people whenever they're baptized. And you'll notice it says something about baptism under that third point. Here's what I want you to do, for real. Some of you guys are just blankly staring at me like, not a chance, bro. I like being on the receiving end of those testimonies. Uh, maybe God has a different plan for you. Maybe he wants you to do this. So how about you just pray about it and ask him what he would like for you to do about it, okay? Instead of immediately hardening your heart and rejecting that. Not, not to come down and... Sorry, that was a little aggressive. What I want you to do is I want you to strongly consider perhaps God would like you to testify on November 19th at 5 p.m. when you sit around your brothers and sisters and praise God and celebrate God and be awestruck by God and say, here's what God has done in me. This is the formula that I share with them. And we usually kind of go back and forth, and I may write something and say, like, hey, explain this a little bit more, whatever. I'm not going to do that with you guys. But I would like for you to consider, perhaps, it's time for you to testify to your church. Perhaps. I'm telling you that the early church did. They were awestruck by what God was doing. And so the November 19th, perhaps God's leading you to do the same. So take a picture of that or something if you want to keep that to yourself. Um, I'll probably bring it up again next week as we kind of get closer to that date. Verse 44, talking about sharing things. It says, 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They're all together and had all things in common. Uh, that's about possessions, okay? It's not saying that they all had the same personalities and hobbies and they were all really into CrossFit and loved the office. Uh, they had all things in common. It means that they shared their possessions with one another. There's harmony, in other words, in diversity. There's harmony in diversity. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were selling their things and saying, Here's a need over here. I'm going to meet that need. Oh, so-and-so has a need. Let's meet that need. Now, the question is, is this early communism? No, this is not early communism. The giving was voluntary. It wasn't forced. This is not an abolition of private property. People still had personal possessions. They still met in their homes, which we're going to see in just a moment. And so clearly people still had things to their name. Later, even Peter is going to tell Ananias and Sapphira that they did not have any obligation to sell their property or to give away their money. However, there is in the church an expected voluntary generosity. There's an expected voluntary generosity with what we have. It doesn't mean that we necessarily sell everything. It just means that we are generous as a church community and we are willing to part with riches for the sake of those in need, especially our church family. 1 John 3.17 is a good example of this from John's writing. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a big deal in the early church. They saw it as a personal burden that they would voluntarily give away the riches if it meant blessing the brothers and their sisters. And so the easy application there for us, church, is number one, to give generously, and number two, to receive gladly. To give generously and to receive gladly, which we're going to see at the end of our passage this morning as it sort of revisits this idea. To give generously and to receive gladly. In other words, if you see a need, meet a need. See a need, meet a need. But also receive gladly. In other words, if you have a need, voice a need. If you have a need, don't feel ashamed to voice a need. That's why we're in a community. That's why we're in a fellowship together. We have a problem in our culture, in our society, and that is that we have bought into the lie that we are self-made. We have bought into the lie that we are independent and self-made people, that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And I'm not saying don't be tough, and I'm not saying don't persevere and be resilient. I'm saying that it is not consistent with Scripture to say that you're a self-made man or woman. There's no such thing as that. You are what you are by God's grace. If you have money in the bank account, it's by God's grace, not your work ethic. If you have anything to your name, it is because God has favorably blessed you to have it so. Every good and perfect gift is from, every good and perfect gift is from above. And we should be tough, and we should work hard. There's plenty in Scripture to support that idea. However, you are not self-made. And because you are not self-made, none of us are self-made. And so don't rob others of the blessing of giving to your needs. Don't rob others. If they feel called to meet a need in your life, don't say, no, man, I don't receive anything from anybody else. I'm a self-made man. It's, it's humiliating to me to receive. Come on now. If that were the spirit of the early church, we'd have a big problem. It wouldn't be a fellowship. They didn't just give generously. They received gladly. And so, don't rob others of the blessing of giving to your needs, but also, don't rob others of the blessing of giving to their needs. We are a community. We're not a bunch of isolated Christians. We're a fellowship, not just in name, but in function. The third thing is that they were worshiping together. 
they were worshiping together. Like we're doing now, right? Check one. We did the first. We did one of them. Good job, everybody. They were worshiping together. You know, the church is not tied to a physical building. We usually say that this is where we worship. It is where we worship. But the church is not tied to a physical building. You guys ever heard that phrase, ladies and gentlemen, fill in the blank, has left the building. You ever heard that phrase before? Elvis, that's where it originated. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. You know why they used to say that? You know why they used to say that? Because they were waiting around for an encore. Like the crowd would become uh, crazy and they would chant and they're like, dude, he's gone. Just get out of here. Like calm down and, and go home. The conclusion of his concerts, they were trying to disperse the audience who lingered in hopes of an encore. And it was the PA guy that would come over and say, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. It was his way of saying, calm down, get out, and don't cause a commotion. Leave without a commotion. I find that to be the exact opposite of who we are as a church. That's the exact opposite of who we are as a church. The church is to leave the building, but it's the reverse. It's not calm down and don't cause a commotion. It's get excited and go cause a commotion. Get excited and go and make waves because of what we have come together to do. Let's gather only to scatter, to gather, to scatter once again. This is what the early church was doing. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple, that's where they started to worship, together, and breaking bread in their homes. You hear it, right? Temple homes. Temple homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's that glad and generous thing we mentioned just a moment ago. The church began meeting in the temple because that's what they always knew. In Judaism, they would meet together in the temple. That's where worship was done. And so that's what the early church decided to do. We'll get together at the temple, but it would quickly become a place of conflict. The church would not be received well at the temple, and so they had to sort of change course. Peter and John would heal a beggar and preach at the temple in Acts 3, and in Acts 4, they would get arrested there. Paul would be arrested at the temple in Acts chapter 21. Paul would also be in the temple when God told him that Jerusalem was too dangerous for him at the temple, and so he needed to go and preach to the Gentiles in Acts 22. In fact, the first major, first, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is killed. You know why? In large part because he puts the temple in perspective, and they did not like that. For the Jews, the worship building became itself an idol, and so for Christians, worship had left the building. They moved to homes. Guys, there's a principle there. Regardless of location, they and we are to worship together. They and we worship together no matter where the physical location was. In other words, worship was far less about their location and more about the collective spirit of gospel-saturated awe, togetherness, prayerfulness, glad and generous hearts of God's people. It was about the fellowship. It wasn't about the building. It was about the fellowship. It wasn't about the building. Guys, our building is not the only place that we are to worship. This building, wonderful as it is, what a blessing it is to have this building. It is not the only place that we are to worship. Having awe, eating, praying, giving, receiving, discussing the Bible. When can, where can you do those things? Be awestruck about what God's doing. Where can you do that? Eat, where can you do that? Pray, where can you do that? Giving, receive things, discuss the Bible. Where can you do that? Everywhere. You can worship everywhere. The church can worship everywhere and anywhere. And whether it be two people from the church or 200 people from the church, this building is not the end-all be-all. 
We're to go and worship beyond this building. If you're at work, you can worship. You can give all to God, eat for the glory of God, pray, give, receive, discuss the Bible. You can do that at work. You can do that around the kitchen table as a family. You can do that over meals, whether it be at home or at a restaurant. You can do that on the party chat on PlayStation or Xbox. You can do that while you're getting a pedicure. You can do that at a kid's play date. You can do that with small group or Sunday school. You can do that having coffee with your brother or sister. You can do that when you're eating. By the way, you don't have to do a Bible study while you're eating to worship while you're eating. You can simply do eating with a glad and generous and grateful heart toward God. You see how worship is so much more than just this. We're called to worship. By the way, everything that I just mentioned, including the PlayStation and Xbox, are examples I know of firsthand of people worshiping in different places, locations, and things. Worship can happen in so many more ways than we box it up to be. Verse 47 says, They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Praising God, having favor with all the people. Notice that there is an internal focus to the church community, needs within, which we've been talking about, but also that there's an external focus. It says, with all the people, favor with all the people. There's an external focus to the church community. By the way, this is before the arrests, before the persecutions, before the martyrs. It says that they had favor with people on the outside. They were viewed, in other words, as good citizens. Now, it didn't compromise who their true king was. They didn't bow to Caesar. They bowed to Jesus. And yet, the meaning here is that the highest ideals of the faith aligned with the highest ideals of Greco-Roman society. And that sounds a little bit weird because you think, wait a second, if they worship Jesus, isn't it going to make them stand out from the culture? Yes, it is. However, the highest ideals of following Jesus were also aligning with the highest ideals, at least for a time, that meant being a member of a Greco-Roman society. Here's what I mean by that. Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can maybe expand on that to say the fruit of the Spirit about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If you can display the fruit of the Spirit, you know what the lost people around you will say? That's a good dude. If you're a patient person, you know what they'll say? That's a, that's, a, what a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a patient person, man. That person just has joy about them. The, the lost world will not see that and think, I don't like that they have so much joy. Shame on them for being good. <laughs> they shouldn't be gentle. I wish they'd be more reckless and mean. That's not, that's not what Obviously, some of the values of our faith are going to be seen favorably by even outsiders. Your lost coworkers, if you have joy in your heart and you are kind to them, you know what they're going to say? Not, I don't like that person. They're going to say, that person's a blessing. I like working with them. They're easy to work with. That's what this author, Luke, is saying here, is that they had all things in common, but also in the world, they were seen favorably even by the people around them. The best society is a society that upholds God-honoring values and loves each other, but we don't and we shouldn't want to be loved by the world by any means necessary. We don't and shouldn't want to be loved by the world by any means necessary, but we do desire to love God and love people as best as we possibly can. And if you love God and you love people well, typically that will be a blessing to lost people, not a, not a hindrance. They like to be loved by you, and you should love them. Love them well. And this is, I think, with the heart of what's being said here. They had favor with the people because they were being people of God. Kind people, gentle people, peaceable people, joyful people. And you can do this individually, But I think more of the message here is that we as a church need to do this collectively. We need to reach our community and the people around us with 
the gospel. We need to be seen favorably by the community around us, by being faithful to God. And by the way, if that makes us an enemy of our community, being faithful to God, so be it. But I think that we can have an imprint in our community, a footprint in our community that is seen favorably by our community. If we go out there and we're picking up trash on the side of the road, they're not going to say, who are those people picking up trash on the side of the road? You know what they're going to say? I'm glad they're doing that. They're going to see that favorably. You see what I'm saying? If you're building a wheelchair ramp for a lost person's neighbor, they're going to say, man, I'm so glad they're doing that. Who are those guys? That's, that's fellowship. Man, that's a good church. You see what I'm saying? The outside world will see the church favorably to a certain extent. We mentioned this last week, but that's part of the reason, a huge part of the reason, that we're making this um, decision to suggest to make Sam Riley full-time. Because one of the biggest emphases of bringing on Sam full-time is, yes, to be able to spend more time with our, our students, but we're adding to his job outreach. Because that's a big gap right now in our church, is that before COVID, we were able to really reach our community. Now, after COVID, we, we've had a hard time resuming that. And I'll take the blame for that. I don't mind that. But I'm also telling you as your pastor that I want to cast some vision and leadership and say, this is a gap. we got a very healthy church, but we're very unhealthy when it comes to outreach together and being seen favorably by outsiders because we are in our community loving people together. And so bringing him on full time, the effort there is that we want to meet physical and spiritual needs of outsiders. We want to love outsiders. We want to love our neighbors and we want to point them ultimately to the hope and the joy and the peace of knowing Jesus. Because this is what Church 101 is about. It's not just about coming together for the sake of the gospel. It's going out together for the sake of the gospel. The last thing here is the last part of verse 47. It says, and, and by the way, man, I, I want to talk so much more about all these things, but you probably have lunch plans and I love you. So I'm trying to do the best thing by both of us, okay? And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What's happening here is that the early church was obedient, and as, as they were obedient, the Lord did the work of adding to their number. Notice it says they added to their number. It didn't say they added to their number. It said the Lord added to their number. The Lord added to their number. He's doing the work while they are being obedient. As a church, we walk obediently in our calling. Fellowship, we are called to walk obediently in our calling. And if we do so, it will look like A, B, C, D, E, F. Six things. Go ahead and put that slide up there. I didn't number them. I lettered them, and so I have a hard time, okay? Six things. And so, uh, look, you don't have to write all that down. Maybe you do, but uh, I want you to see what this looks like for us, church. Church 101. If we're applying the early church's model that we see in the, these six verses, number one, letter A, it will mean that we are knowing and growing in the Word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to teaching, to God's Word, to Jesus' teaching. When Jesus was sending out his guys, he was getting ready to be crucified. In the high priestly prayer, he's praying to his father, and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. This is John 17, 15 through 17. Jesus said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, guard them, protect them, ensure them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And verse 17 is why I'm saying this, as it pertains to this right here. Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If we're going to go and live this way, do these things, it is vitally important that the very first thing, we keep the very first thing, and that's that we must be people of the word. If we're not, 
Jesus says that you keep them from the evil one. We will have a hard time being kept from the evil one if we are not people that are being sanctified in the truth. Very first thing, know and grow in the word, the teachings. Secondly, is to fellowship regularly. To fellowship regularly. You know what regularly is. I'm not going to sit there and tell you a quantity, a number of what that looks like. You know in your heart what it means to be here regularly, and you know in your heart when you have violated regularly and you haven't been in church. Fair? You know what regularly means. And so we need to fellowship to get together and gather regularly. You need to be here. If you're a guest, you can be somewhere else too, I guess. But church family, you need to be right here worshiping together, to fellowship regularly, to worship together, to sing together, to eat together, to pray together, which is the third thing, to pray. Up there you'll see beside it in blue, him, me, them, us. I wanted to share, I've shared this before with you, but we've, a lot of people are here now that weren't, when I, weren't here when I said this back then. A lot of people struggle to know what to pray for, um, to, to set a goal and say, I, I don't know what to even say. Some of you guys will say, I don't know what not to say. I could just talk forever to God. And I guess that's kind of the point. But I'm going to give you a very quick model. Perhaps you could say with 20 minutes, a 20-minute prayer. You may say, that's a long time. What am I going to talk about for 20 minutes? It's not as long as you think. Because this model, I think, is very helpful. Number one, I think it's awe. We, we talk to God and say, God, you are amazing. Him, number one, him. Talk, God, you're amazing. I see your grace constantly in my life, your mercy. And I could talk for so long about this because at 20 minutes is nothing compared to what you could do with just him, to express gratitude with him, to express praise to him. That's him. Maybe five minutes there. The second is me. Talk about your own hurts, your own needs, your own sins. Confess those things. Entrust things to him. That's talking about me. And you could talk about that for easily five minutes. The third is them. Talk about others. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your children, your, grand, uh, your grandkids, your grandparents. Pray for your friends. Pray for your enemies for five minutes. You should still be able to do that for five minutes. And then last, us. Pray for us. Pray for your church family. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leadership. Pray for your deacons. Pray for this body of believers. There are so many needs here, and we can pray for that for five minutes. You see how easy that is? With a very simple model, you can easily pray for 20 minutes and have made very good use out of the time and the intimacy that you have in prayer. The apostles and the early church devoted themselves to prayer, and I think that this is part of this church 101 thing that we neglect. We relegate prayer to something we do before meals and maybe as we hit our pillow at night and we don't really pray. Not really. I would encourage you to consider what that would look like for you. Next is awe. We've kind of talked about that already, so I won't hit on that too much, but be awestruck by who God is. Next is to give generously, receive gladly, and receive gratefully. Again, we've talked pretty much at length about that. And the last thing is not so much in this passage as it is in this book, and that is to be witnesses, to testify. It's Acts 1.8. Go and be my witnesses, it says. It's the same root word that we would use for the word testify. What that means is, it's like that courtroom analogy. Go tell the truth. Go tell the truth. Church 101 is to go out of this place and scatter to one day again gather, but to scatter and be people that tell the truth about who God is and what he has done. Guys, listen, from your pastor here, what an amazing thing that God is adding to our number. He is doing at fellowship exactly what he was doing in Acts chapter 2. He is adding to our number, and we praise God for, him, for that because it is absolutely him that produces it. It's not your staff. It's not your deacons. It's not the committees. It's not the programs. God is doing things in this church. Amen?
God's doing things in this church. And I'll say this, man, because I have a lot of these conversations, because I talk through baptism with people, because I talk through membership conversations with people, I just want you to know, you don't, you're not privy to all these conversations, but I want you to know this. When church is done the right way, you hear me? When church is done like this, it is attractive to those who are seeking. Believe it or not, people don't want fog machines on stage and concert music and camera jibs that are floating over the audience, giving them an MTV music video feel. MTV doesn't even do music videos anymore. We won't go on that. Believe it or not, people don't want the inauthentic. They don't want coffee bars in the gathering space. They don't want all their boxes checked because if all their boxes checked, it means that somebody's probably aren't. Believe it or not, seekers, true seekers that are looking for a movement of God, you know what they're looking for? That. And the amazing thing is that looks like fellowship right now. I'm not here to rebuke you. I'm here to say thank you. People are coming to this church because God's doing the work. But people are coming to fellowship because they see that this is a healthy church. And so many of the guests that we've been having lately, you know what happens? They come back because they have tasted and seen a healthy church and tasted and seen the gospel that is infusing all of who we are. And if people come up to me and just say, man, God is moving here. It's so obvious. The people here are, are loving and they're welcoming. And it's so obvious. You know why? It's because we are being moved by the Spirit of God. God is doing something. We're being obedient and God is doing something. And I'm just here to tell you, maybe you're not doing those things, but a lot of the people around you are. But a lot of the people around you aren't. And so if you're not living in Church 101, my encouragement to you as your pastor is to join us in the fellowship. You're not part of the fellowship just because you pull into the parking lot. You're part of the fellowship because you have joined the partnership. And you can sit in these seats and not be a partner. You can sit in these seats, seats and not have bought in to the mission. My encouragement is to you to buy in. As a church, we trust God to change hearts. And we thank God when he does what only he can do. And right now, baby, he is doing it. And we thank God for that, man. I want to focus on one word that I did not focus on earlier as we close. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves is one word in the Greek. The, re the root word is uh, kratos. <laughs> I could go into it. Never mind. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, it's it's <laughs> You don't want to know. It's, it's kratos. It, that word kratos, it, it means consistently showing strength, which prevails in spite of difficulties. That's what that word means. They devoted themselves. It means that they were showing strength, consistently showing strength, which prevailed in spite of difficulties. In other words, this was a commitment of the early church. It wasn't natural. It did not come easily. It's something that they were kratos, that they were committed to even when the going got tough. Guys, we endure not because our ability to stand firm and fight, but because Jesus has already stood firm and won the fight for us. He is our firm foundation, and you will fail. You will go out of these doors, and you will sin, and you will struggle, and you will be given over to the difficulties of this world, because we all will do that. But when that happens, I just want you to remind yourself, I mean, no, that the apostles' teaching tells us that you are not made right before God because your work before God. You're made right before God because of Jesus' work before God. 
The song that we sang just a minute ago said, uh, oh man, Chris, remind me of the words. It says, our judge and our defender. What's the next part? Suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Thanks for your help, Chris. <laughs> our judge and our defender. Listen, I want to talk for just a second. Our judge and our defender. That was great. Very helpful. Um, our judge. You know, Jesus, God is both our judge, but he's also our defense. In a courtroom, that makes no sense. How can God be both our judge who is impartial and our defendant who is very partial? It's because God the Father looks at us and says, I see all your sin. But our defendant Jesus stands by us and says, yeah, they got a lot of sin. I covered every bit of it. That's the gospel. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness. Not wrath, but forgiveness is in you. That's our foundation. And when you go out, and you fail at Church 101, come back together and be reminded once again that it's not based on your work. It's based on the work of Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to do it on your own, man, to do it in your own strength. And you find that you put yourself in the bed, you lay your head on the pillow each night, given over to doubt and fear and weariness. And you come here and you hear the testimonies and you're not encouraged, you're convicted. I want to tell you something. Conviction is a gift. It is a gift. And you may be here today and have never given your life to Jesus, but if he has convicted you today to do that, it is a gift. God wants to lift your burden. And so today, your next step perhaps is right now making it official that you're saying, God, I, I can't stand on my own two feet. I need a defender. Because the judgment, the wages of my sin is death. I need a defender. I'm here to tell you that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus today, you have a defense. And it is not your morality. It is the perfect substitutionary work of Jesus. This water can be your, your testimony too. It can be your celebration too. Because Jesus can give you rest. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes as we respond? As we do at fellowship, you know, I don't like to rush this, this moment in the service. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'll have some background kind of instrumental music playing for a moment. I'll be here at the front if you need to make a decision, if you'd like to pray with the pastor, if you just need to recommit your life to Church 101 and say, I've really dropped the ball on these things. I need to make a new commitment here. Then you can do that. You can just, you can pray at your seat. You can pray here. I want you to respond and be obedient because this is not just the time where we look around and see if anybody wants to give their life to Jesus or join the church. This is the opportunity where we look in our hearts and consider what it is that God has for me to do next.